Good morning, buenos dias. It's good to see all of you this morning. Can you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A long time ago, hundreds of years before John the Baptist was born, there was a prophet named Elijah. And when Elijah was hungry and needed food, he discovers God has sent a delivery of groceries by ravens. The birds drop off meat and bread in the morning, and then again in the evening, meal by meal, day by day. At this time, the prophet Elijah has taken up residence between, in a river between two steep hills. And when any leader wants to get information about what God is up to from the prophet, they have to trek out their servants through the wilderness to ask their questions, to which they very rarely actually like the answers they get. This is not an especially efficient way to get things done for either Elijah or for God. If you are looking to reshape the structural powers of Israel, If you want to right the idolatrous bloodshed of a nation hanging out in a craggy rock bend, spending your miracles on widows, making clothes out of leather, these are strange choices. Today in our scripture, we're meant to make a double take when we see John the baptizer in the book of Mark. He is this mirror image of the prophet Elijah. Now John was clothed with camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. And we learn that also like the prophet Elijah, people are coming to the wilderness to meet John, to get dipped clean in the mikvah of the Jordan River. With John, this nomad person, this desert person, Most of us, myself included, I would venture, look to avoid the kinds of inconveniences John and his prophetic twin Elijah have made sort of the centerpiece of their life. They never travel more than a few miles from the place they were born. They spend their lives living off subsistence, carving out this very small existence. And yet we are here remembering them each Advent season as we reach back in time to harvest what they've sowed with their lives. There are places in our world that intentionally cultivate these kind of inconvenient lives. I lived one of those. The kind of life that was looking to foster a patience that's exemplified by someone like John the Baptist. In 2006, I moved across the country to Portland, Oregon to live in a L'Arche community. L'Arche is French for the Ark. And true to its name and calling, L'Arche was a place where people with and without intellectual disabilities found refuge. We lived out these extremely ordinary and simple lives 
Only the pace was twice as slow <laughs> as what most of us do with our lives. In our little house on Southeast 86th Street, just about everything took twice as long. The core members in our community, the people with disabilities who made up the center of our common life, their personal care, their activities, required more time because it was theirs. Now, it would have been very easy for assistants, people like me, to take charge, to pick out everyone's clothes, to rush through these routines, to skip steps. No one would have known. Except that the dignity of each person's life and choices were sacred to us. Giving space for each of us to do what we could, supporting each other when we had need, refusing to rush, that was actually the purpose of our time. That's what we were doing there. The only goal each day was mutuality and respect, and the only way to get there was reshaping the way we thought about time and necessity. One of our core members, Marilyn, who passed away a couple years ago, she used to refer to everything outside of L'Arche as out there. Out there in the world, beyond the boundaries of our home, the very existence of our core members' lives was a source of frustration. We did not move quickly through coffee lines. We were barked at to get out of the way on sidewalks and shopping aisles. The world was not built for our friends, for the ways that they tested time's patience. Everyone around us had something better to do than be where they were. They had places to go and people to see and things to buy. And it was hard because for us in Larsh, this was it. <laughs> this is all we had to do to simply be present in the world and occasionally to get in the way of progress. And I think there is something about that life, the life of John the Baptist, which also becomes the life of his cousin Jesus. For those of us who follow after this Jesus, neither of these men meet the criteria for success that we are told to navigate towards in our lives. They make no money, they have no careers, they have no family, they have no children, they leave no legacy. Their lives disrupt the very center of what we would consider winning the game of life, of what we hear we ought to be doing with most of our time. And the more I thought about this over the week, it really does seem that time is the center of this equation. Just think about the ways we talk about time. We need to keep it, to steward it, to stretch it. Time is money, and money is time. I remember hearing, well, reading a, an essay from a working mother who was so busy getting ahead, balancing her career and home life, leaning in, that one of her practices was to heat up everything in the microwave for 33 seconds. 
That way she only had to hit the same button twice instead of having to search for a three and a zero. And that feels like a very good summary of how time works for us here. Relentlessly invented, in fact, to squeeze out every moment of pleasure and productivity from our days. And yes, time is invented. We made it up. And it wasn't always this way. A few years ago, I read a book about time. And I learned in that book that the very first clocks ever built were constructed for one purpose. They cultivated faithfulness, not efficiency. These clocks had no hands, you couldn't see them, there was nothing to mark seconds or minutes. Those inventions, hands on a clock, they would actually take centuries to develop before we felt like we needed them. Instead, clocks were a simple series of chimes that directed monks towards the daily office of prayer. Their purpose was to call these monks out of their work of making beer or honey or of study or cooking and to remember their true purpose was to be present to God. And that was it. They'd lost some of that in the rigors of daily work. And so their abbots developed a a system to call them back to prayer. It's only with the development of networks of commerce that exacting time became a necessary invention. You need business to exact time. Merchants first demanded chimes to mark a length of a productive day, the start and end of a unit of labor for manufacturing. And for a while, there was a lot of conflict between the chimes that chimed in church and the chimes that chimed for the merchants. But eventually, the merchants won. As soon as the shift occurred, people began to view time not as a common good that we're meant to cultivate, but as an orientation towards being bought and sold. Time was no longer there to facilitate our first purpose, just to be loved by God. As it is, today we talk about wasting time. And it seems like we never have enough. Advent invites us into a different pace of time. A pace of time we call waiting. The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's life, for all his anticipation of the Spirit, is actually chocked full of it. And the Spirit is often at work reorienting time. Just after this, the Spirit will show up again in the very next chapter to lead Jesus into the desert for 40 nights. 40 nights and 40 days of fasting and prayer and temptation. If we pay attention to the gospel, most of Jesus' ministry will unfold with interruptions 
and inconveniences. He's there and people keep showing up. They're barging in. They're asking to be healed, asking to understand, wanting to learn from him. Jesus' entire ministry is a matter of unpredictable encounters with ordinary people over and over again. Beloved, we all live with the burden of time, its management, its slippage. And one of the ways we work through that feeling of loss is through efficiency and progress and planning. It isn't unusual that people who are disruptors of efficiency are often swept away in this process. The very old, the very young, disabled people, people whose bodies or lives don't quite fit the expectations we've met to make our world faster and stronger and wealthier. John the baptizer draws our gaze here. And he points us on to this Jesus who will come not in the ways the Roman Empire imagines power, but in a slow life, in a life marked by wasted time, a life that stretches out to those who've been told that their lives get in the way, but to whom Jesus says, blessed are you. Amen.